Hello, I'm Annabelle Bly, host of the Ant Hill podcast. Before we start this week's episode of our recovery series, we have a little request for you. You may have noticed the lack of adverts on this podcast. That's because the Ant Hill is produced by The Conversation UK. We are an independent news media outlet that exists purely to take reliable, informed voices direct to a wide audience. We're a charity with no wealthy owner nudging an editorial line in one direction or another. The only opinion we hold is that knowledge is crucially important and must be made widely available to help as many people as possible understand the world and make informed decisions. We're in the middle of a donations campaign right now, so if you can help us do what we do, please go to donate.theconversation.com forward slash UK. And if you've already supported what we do, we want to say a massive thank you. Now, on to the show. You're listening to Recovery, a series from the Anthill podcast looking at the way our ancestors recovered after massive shocks to their system. Our first episode was all about the aftermath of the Black Death in the 14th century and beyond. In this second episode, we're moving on a few hundred years to look at a natural disaster, the earthquake that destroyed the city of Lisbon in 1755. It isn't the most well-known of historical crises today, but the earthquake had repercussions that were felt across a continent, upending philosophical systems, changing politics and shaking religious faith. To tell the story of how Lisbon and Europe responded to the devastation of 1755, I'm going to pass you over to my colleague, Grace Allen. She's The Conversation's cities editor and also happens to have a PhD in early modern history. Over to Grace. In the 18th century, Lisbon was one of Europe's greatest cities. It was the centre of the Portuguese empire, strategically located on Atlantic trade routes, including the slave trade. It was hugely wealthy from gold arriving from Portuguese colonies in Brazil. On the morning of the 1st of November, 1755, this grand city, home to around 200,000 people, was getting ready to celebrate the religious holiday of All Saints Day. Instead, it was hit by an earthquake measuring between 8 and 9 on the Richter scale. The earthquake and subsequent shockwaves were followed by a tsunami. The sea receded, emptying the harbour, before six-metre-high waves poured back in. Then, fires, started by candles lit to celebrate All Saints Day, engulfed the city. Lisbon was almost completely destroyed. Thousands of people lost their lives. The 1755 earthquake and the process of recovery changed Portugal, but it also changed Europe more widely. It's not an overstatement to say that it fundamentally altered how people viewed the world. I've got three experts with me to discuss the earthquake further. Katie Cross is a research fellow in the School of Divinity, History and Philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. Hello. David McCallum is reader in French 18th century studies at the University of Sheffield. Hi. And Mark Sabine is Associate Professor in Spanish, Portuguese and Latin American Studies at the University of Nottingham. Hi. I'm going to turn to Mark first to learn more about the immediate impact and response to the earthquake. Mark, what would the situation in Lisbon have been like in the days immediately following the earthquake? Well, I think a a state of horror, 
and uh, disruption on an almost on a scale that would have been unprecedented for pretty much any observer coming from any part of Europe. Uh, as you mentioned in your introduction, this was one of Europe's largest cities with a population estimated to be around 200,000. And it was also certainly one of the richest and most opulent cities, having been embellished with so much of the proceeds of the Brazilian gold boom and later diamond boom. So Brazil at this time was the richest source of gold and diamonds in the world. And a huge proportion of that wealth went directly either to church authorities or to the crown and had been splurged on the construction of lavish palaces, churches and convents, all of which now lay in ruins. Roughly two thirds of the city was rendered completely uninhabitable by the succession of the nine minute long earth tremors, followed by the the three tsunamis that hit the lower ground of the city. And worst of all, by the fires that broke out on account of the votive candles that were lit in all of the churches for the celebration of Mass on All Saints Day. I believe a total of 33 of the city's 40 parish churches were destroyed. Something like about 40% of the city's housing stock was rendered completely ruinous. More than 20 of the city's 40 parishes lay completely ruined and completely burnt within a week of the earthquake. Thanks, Mark. And... How did the governing class, the rulers of Portugal, go about responding to this tragedy? So Portugal at this time was an absolute monarchy under the reign of King José I. José, however, had from the outset of his reign in 1750 shown little interest in hands-on ruling. And he had, over the course of the previous five years, increasingly deferred the, the matter of government to one of his three senior ministers, his his Secretary of State, Sebastião José de Carvalho e Melo, uh, who later was, was made Marquis of the town of Pombal and is known to history as the Marquis of Pombal. Um, the king and his family were actually, fortunately for them, not in the city centre when the earthquake struck. They were down at their, uh, if you like, their weekend residence, six kilometres down towards the coast. And uh, Pombal made his way in the immediate aftermath of the, the earthquake to consult the king, found him in a state of utter shock, terror, despair. And it is said that King José asked of Pombal, what on earth are we to do? And Pombal calmly replied, sire, we must bury the dead and feed the living. And with this calm and pragmatic approach, Pombal proceeded to orchestrate the most extraordinary recovery and stabilisation efforts over the, the, the subsequent weeks and months of the crisis, having procured from the king sweeping executive powers and with the king's backing being able to um, persuade the religious authorities to deal with the most pressing danger that the city faced, which was that of disposing of the thousands or possibly tens of thousands, we don't know the exact number of casualties, but it was the most reliable estimates put it at around 15,000. So it was necessary to dispose of those bodies before the city was consumed by terrible outbreaks of disease. 
as Pombal saw it, that meant bypassing the usual process of funeral rites and um, burial in sanctified grounds and simply gathering the bodies together, throwing them onto ships and having them buried at sea before that kind of um, epidemic situation could arise. At the same time, simultaneously with, with dealing with that, he was addressing four other serious problems. Famine, depopulation as, as, as uh, people fled from the aftershocks of the earthquake and the fires, crime as um, opportunists looted the, the ruins and such abandoned buildings as, as were still in some kind of non-ruinous state, and perhaps most importantly of all, the recriminations, the way in which people were searching for some kind of explanation for this, this appalling catastrophe and in many cases presumed that this must be some kind of divine retribution against the city or against certain constituencies within the city's population. In, and in particular, those who were targeted were religious heretics, such as the, the substantial population of British and other Northern European merchants that worked in the city. And in terms of the city itself, how did Pombal or the, the Portuguese government go about rebuilding or deciding what to do with the ruins of Lisbon? Okay, so after the initial process of, of uh, stabilisation, in which Pombal had personally overseen the, the measures that were necessary to, to prevent the outbreak of disease, to feed the population, to uh, persuade them not to abandon the city, to punish criminals for looting and thieving, and also to negotiate with the religious authorities to persuade them against fanning the flames of religious scapegoating. Pombal secured further executive powers from the king, enabling him to embark on a whole-scale reconstruction of the city. In a sense, we could say that um, it's a good example of how this type of whole-scale catastrophe can be interpreted and has been interpreted in many historical instances as as an opportunity as as well as a disaster. Um, From the start of King José's reign, Pombal had been aiming at a a long-term reform of Portugal's political system and its economy that would free the country from the overwhelming economic reliance it had on Great Britain and on British merchants, who can, who by this stage controlled most of the Brazilian trade. And in order to do this, he believed he had to displace the vested powers of the aristocracy, and particularly of church institutions and um, the most powerful religious foundation in the country, which was the Jesuit order. And the rebuilding of Lisbon was his great opportunity, both in terms of showing that he had the organisational skills to take on such a huge project and and to prevent further loss of life and property, but also in terms of minimising both the symbolic and the material presence and power of those institutions who opposed his reforms, and to centralise power under the crown, but effectively in his own hands, and also to empower the merchant class of the city. We can see this in the reconstructed city centre, which was rebuilt in an uncompromisingly rationalist and centralising spirit, using a a sort of rationalist grid plan of streets, 
which was heavily influenced by Christopher Wren's plans for the rebuilding of, of the City of London, which were never realised, but were also an opportunity to symbolise through the architecture both the power of the crown and the prestige of the merchant class. Where in the old city, the most prominent buildings had been the churches and convents and the palaces of the aristocracy, now in this, this new grid plan that Pombal created, churches would have to be rebuilt within the confines of that grill. They could not have bell towers or domes that rose above the standard height of the, um, the new grid of buildings. And also the, the houses of the aristocracy had to conform to that, that grid plan as well. And aristocrats were no longer permitted to embellish the um, facades of their palaces with large-scale emblems or, or coats of arms displaying their, their status. So the impact on Portugal and on Lisbon was absolutely huge in terms of the new city that emerged after the earthquake. Yes. But um, turning to David now, what kind of impact did this earthquake have on the rest of Europe? Was it big news across the continent? Well, long before written reports reached Western Europe, the first impact of the earthquake was physical. There were substantial tremors felt over some 15 million square kilometers, which encompassed a lot of continental Europe and North Africa at the time. Famously, the earthquake warped the beams in Casanova's cell in Venice, some two and a half thousand kilometers away. So it was an instantaneous pan-European connection made by the earthquake, even though clearly the sources of this event were not clear. And it's the closest thing you really get to a, a mass media event or the basis of a mass media event before news radiates from Paris in 1789 at the outbreak of the revolution. The news came in waves, a bit, in a sense, replicating seismic waves in their spread. They reached Madrid on the 4th of November, three days after the quake, and were published in the newspapers on the 8th there. They reached Versailles on the 17th, Paris as a city on the 22nd, the same time as they reached London. They reached Geneva on the 24th and Berlin on the 2nd of December. The news was communicated by diplomatic bag, merchant ships and private correspondence. But it's also worth bearing in mind, given the length of time that this took, so three or four weeks for the news to filter through, that it wasn't just one-way traffic to keep um, their audiences, the readerships interested in these events. News also radiated back towards Lisbon and to other important centres across the continent. And if this was news um, of royal consternation at what had happened, prayers said for the dead and dying in Lisbon, famous bankruptcies were commented on um, due to the collapse of famous trading houses, and then there was um, a tugging on the collective heartstrings with stories of the financial, food and um, other forms of humanitarian aid that were also being organised to be sent out to Lisbon. There were also false reports circulating. So there were uh, uh, estimates that the initial death toll was as much as 100,000. And this was the news that Voltaire received on the 24th of November in Geneva, or on the outskirts of Geneva, where he compared Lisbon to an anthill 
and the earthquake as a mighty blow to it, which had wiped out a hundred thousand of these little ants. The earthquake was also quickly popularized in other media. So there were poems written about it. There was a play in France in 1756. And in the traveling fairs, uh, the lower orders could see optical illusions that portrayed the Lisbon earthquake in, in shows such as dioramas and looking boxes. So these were all ways in which the news rippled through the continent and really had a, a very dramatic effect. Just to give you one example, more than 50 years later, Goethe, writing in the 1810s, recalls hearing the news as a six-year-old and as being one of the most shocking and traumatic events of his young life. So this news had a really big impact across Europe. Mm. What kind of effect of it can we see in the way people started to understand what this kind of disaster meant? That's a good question. There are a number of responses to it. Uh, it's powerful and resonant news, clearly. I mean, first of all, it reactivates a very classical trope, which is that of the city raised to the ground. This is the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah. But more sensationally, it's also a, a modern reliving of Pompeii. Now, the ruins of Pompeii had only been unearthed sensationally in 1748. So this sense that an ancient sin city, as it was seen, had been wiped off the planet by what was seen as a natural, in inverted commas, disaster, that obviously had some impact on the way the Lisbon earthquake was um, understood. It's also seen as a catastrophe, which is originally a theatrical term, meaning a devastating reversal of fortunes, usually something that takes place in the fifth act of a tragedy. So in this instance, it feeds into a story of the rise and fall of empires. And this is a catastrophe heralding to some extent the terminal decline of the Portuguese empire, as it's seen from certain perspectives across Europe. There are more modern ingredients to the way this news was understood. First of all, there were high-profile victims claimed by the earthquake, the Spanish ambassador, the head of the English seminary, and a number of important merchants, specifically actually merchants' wives from Britain, that form part of what's called the British Factory, which is this trading corporation, which Mark has already described as having such a stranglehold on wealth creation from the Portuguese empire. So these were reasons why I think it became such a big news story. It also underlined the very international character of Lisbon as a city. But the key modern understanding of what happened at Lisbon is that the suffering was sensationalized sensationalized over a long period of time, and it stirred a very modern sense of humanitarianism in other nations across Europe. It mobilized the disaster relief, which hadn't been seen before in this way. So, for example, in December 1755, the British government was already pledging £25,000 sterling, which was later increased to £50,000 sterling as relief. And this response, as in Pombal's own Portugal was secular, centralized, and national. Now, this is important because it's the state superseding and intervening on what is seen as the church's territory, that of a charity mission. 
it's also a way in which the church bodies were displaced, but also increasingly distrusted. And as Mark had mentioned, chief among those is the Society of Jesus, the Jesuit order. And what's interesting is the longer term effects within Europe can be seen, at least, for example, one, one perhaps momentous longer term effect would be the eventual expulsion of the Jesuits across Europe, starting in Portugal in 1759, but then from France in 1764 and the Spanish Empire in 1767. And this in turn leads to actually quite important educational reforms within those countries because the Jesuits had previously run the majority of educational institutions. So it's not just the earthquake that spreads out in dramatic seismic waves. There are also political and social consequences which unfold from it, many of them very unpredictable. Thank you. Katie, I'd like to bring you in here. You research religious responses to traumatic events. Would you like to comment a bit further on what David's been saying about the religious response? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I think has been mentioned already is that this earthquake took place on a really important uh, religious holiday, which was All Saints Day on the 1st of November. So people were um, obviously going to church, uh, going to mass to celebrate and lit a lot of candles, which inadvertently um, caused some of the fire later on. Um, partly because this struck on an important holiday, but also because a lot of churches were damaged um, during the earthquake and in the aftermath. Um, it caused a lot of anxiety, a lot of confusion um, among people in, in Lisbon who were devoutly Catholics. This was a very kind of Roman Catholic city. And partly because of that and partly because people were starting to open up to uh, sort of questions of divine providence. It's just a kind of fancy way of saying you know, everything is God's plan. With the Enlightenment, that was starting to go away. And so people then begin to kind of wonder, well, well, what's this all about? Why has this happened? We get questions like, was this a natural disaster? Was it God's wrath? Um, was it divine judgment? And if God is, is supposed to be loving and powerful, then why has this happened? So this is maybe an idea that something was being punished. Yeah, absolutely. So we do see a few examples of that around the time. Um, Gabriel Malagruda, he was a Jesuit missionary who had quite a lot of influence in Lisbon at the time. And he was one of the kind of high profile voices saying, well, actually, this earthquake was divine punishment. People in Lisbon are sinful, maybe because of their wealth. He actually released a pamphlet in the aftermath of the earthquake and in the pamphlet he says these are not natural contingencies or causes they're solely our intolerable sins um do catholics not understand that the world is not a house without an owner so in other words this is god um, directly uh, punishing the people of lisbon this is the wrath of god against the sins of the people and was this the way that everyone reacted to this news that it was a kind of religious punishment or did it change how people thought about religion generally it's a really good question. As far as I know, the Marquis de Pombal did not see it this way, believed that it was a natural event, didn't believe that this had anything kind of bearing on religion. But I suppose people throughout Lisbon who would have been devoutly Christian would have seen this as exactly aligned. They would have thought, you know, that there was some kind of divine um, reasoning for it. 
And then you get this conversation that unfolds between uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Voltaire, who are writing to one another about this. And they start to have a conversation where they're, they're speaking about whether this is the wrath of God or not. Uh, and Rousseau is saying, actually, it's not just people being blamed uh, for suffering, but actually it's people's own stupidity that has caused this. So he's saying, you know, if, if people had been careful, if they'd actually built their houses more solidly, if their houses hadn't been so cramped, um, if people had taken early evacuation warnings, you know, then none of this would have happened. It's not entirely about religion. So there's there's a bit of both really going on there. Absolutely. Um, Mark, is there anything you'd like to add to that? Well, just that regarding the reaction that was coordinated by Pombal, one of the first things that Pombal did in the months after the earthquake was to commission a comprehensive survey of the earthquake's effects right across Portugal. And this was actually the first such comprehensive study of an earthquake and its physical, economic and social consequences that had been commissioned anywhere in Europe. Um, so in that sense, he was he was very proactively working against these, these more uh, religious or superstitious interpretations of the event. And, and that was carried through to the rebuilding of the city as well, in that very innovative methods for mitigating the effects of future earthquakes were developed in the, the rebuilding of the city and have, and have proven their worth, that um, Lisbon is still quite regularly struck by uh, more minor earthquakes. And yet these buildings from the, the, the rebuilding of the, the 1750s and 1760s have, um, have survived and, um, and remain extremely robust because of those, those innovative methods. David, what's your perspective on this question of religion following the earthquake? There, there are a number of ways of looking at it. Katie's mentioned providentialism, which I think is, is very important because it's not just a discrediting of traditional Christian interpretations of an earthquake as divine punishment. It's also a way of calling into question the beneficence, you know, the kindness, the goodness of a deity of a natural theology. So if you imagine that the world is created for the happiness and well-being of humankind, and that's perceptible in the daily wonders of nature and the way we enjoy them materially and spiritually, an earthquake quite literally shatters all of that and makes us rethink that, if you like, compact between humanity and the natural world. And the particular form of providentialism that it most affects is one which is satirized most famously, most savagely in Voltaire's Candide, which is optimism. Now, this isn't optimism as we understand it today, that sort of look on the bright side, mustn't grumble, glass half full type of general positivity. This is optimism understood as an omnipotent, benevolent deity creating a universe to hold an optimum of good or goodness. So if something exists, it is for the good. It is for the best in the best of all possible worlds. And Voltaire and many of his contemporaries looked with horror and dismay at what had happened in Lisbon and said, that cannot possibly be. It cannot be justified on those terms. And as a result, he qualifies optimism as a cruel philosophy under a consoling name. It's a heartless fatalism, which is actually denies or in denial of the very real human suffering felt by the Lisbon population. And so in, in many ways, it, it goes against those fairly modern humanitarian instincts 
which were, which were aroused elsewhere in capitals across the, the, the continent. Thank you. The Lisbon earthquake can seem quite distant and remote from us, but are there ways in which we can see parallels with how the recovery effort from the earthquake links up with things that we're seeing today in our attempts going forward to recover from coronavirus? Mark, maybe you have some input on that. Yes, I'd repeat what I said earlier about um, the frequency with which major catastrophes are often thought of in terms of opportunities as much as in terms of uh, humanitarian disaster. Going back to what David and, and Katie were saying about the religious politics of the 18th century, it's extremely unlikely that Pombal would have prevailed or would have prevailed so quickly in um, his moves against to constrain the church and particularly the Jesuits if it hadn't been for the kind of, not just the, the sweeping powers that he was granted in order to deal with the earthquake, but that generalised atmosphere of crisis and of times being radically shaken up and of and of uh, a need to to reach out to different ways of thinking or extreme solutions to an extreme problem, and I think you know I think that's something that although there's there's never obviously direct parallels to be drawn between one historical event and another. I think it's it's a, a kind of general principle that it's that's it's wise for us to consider in uh, the face of of any major world disaster. Um, Katie, what do you reckon? Uh, yeah, I would agree. I think also um, Lisbon is your first sort of modern disaster that happens, as as both David and, and Mark have said. And this is the first time that we get this um, classical kind of theological question of um, why has God allowed this to happen? And out of this comes the question, well, you know, people in Lisbon would have believed that God was loving. So why why would a loving God let this go ahead? And if there is suffering in the world, this becomes problematized. So within theology, where I sit, we have ways of thinking about that, arguments that are sometimes called theodicies, which are defense of the divine. And they kind of give reasons for human suffering and they sort of turn the blame back on humans themselves. And with coronavirus, it's really interesting. So I teach on this at the University of Aberdeen. And we talk about how people still use those explanations. You see them on the news and you maybe see them on Twitter, things like that. There's actually um, an example of somebody quite recently, a journalist called A.Q. Siddiqui. It's a journalist for the India Post who wrote a really interesting piece questioning whether coronavirus was God's wrath against a sinful world. So, I mean, again, as, um, as David was saying, there aren't direct parallels, but it's interesting to see how those kinds of explanations are still quickly drawn on especially when major world events happen. That's just what people gravitate towards. Could I just add to that? I suppose you could maybe say that it's not just about how major catastrophes create a situation in which it's necessary for someone to take command of the narrative to supply the dominant explanation of what has happened, why has happened, and how we get out of that disaster situation. Um, But also about the importance of looking for the ways in which that narrative is established. I mean, for example, in the case of the, of, um, of Lisbon, I mentioned earlier the importance of the, the actual architectural language and symbolism of the rebuilding. And that was an absolutely essential way in which Pombal established this idea that, that the, the Lisbon that was rising from the rubble and from the ashes was going to be the capital of a very different empire and a very different society. And we might think about other ways in which that that change of narrative 
can be um, imposed in the aftermath of a major catastrophe. And the last word goes to David. Do you see any parallels between the recovery from the Lisbon earthquake and what we might be seeing today? So one of the interesting parallels or one of the interesting lessons perhaps to learn is that Lisbon contrasts interestingly with another 18th century earthquake, which is Calabria in 1783. Now, it's estimated that the death toll is quite similar, but the disaster, in a sense that we understand it today, is really something which marks contemporary consciousness by striking at key centres of international networks of flows of power, goods, capital, information. So you know a lot about Lisbon and very little about Calabria. And the greater the economic, political and media integration, the greater the sense, or rather the larger the sense of catastrophe there is. And, um, you know, especially if it disrupts spectacularly those type of systems. i just add another couple of points. One is that responses to disaster are never politically or ethically neutral. You don't just follow the science. And the scientific response to Lisbon in particular was very pluralistic, divergent, and interesting. It was also very urgent, which has another sort of parallel. But there are always uh, political and economic and ecological situations which precede and contribute towards disasters. And there are always governmental responses which either alleviate or exacerbate what the disaster does. So there is no such thing as a purely natural disaster. And this is something we learned very clearly with Lisbon. That was Rousseau's lesson that Katie's already referred to. And just to, to finish, I'd say that um, one of the things which is most interesting is that Lisbon is seen as an expression of a modern form of terror, terror in the face of overwhelming, unstoppable, unpredictable natural might. And terror continues to teach us one thing, which is that we can be very institutionally robust in our societies, but we can at the same time remain psychologically very fragile. And that's something which I think is quite clear in many of the different responses to Lisbon. And it remains true, obviously, to the way we're responding to um, coronavirus today. So if the media and the public response to coronavirus is anything to go by, this is an example that we're going to be learning from and we're going to be seeing the recovery from for many years to come in in a similar fashion to Lisbon. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Grace Allen talking to Katie Cross, research fellow at the University of Aberdeen. David McCallum, reader at the University of Sheffield, and Mark Sabine, Associate Professor at the University of Nottingham. We'll be back next week with part three of our series, Recovery, to tell the story of how the world began to recover after the combined shock of the Spanish flu and the First World War in 1918. If you're enjoying this podcast, please tell your friends about us or give us a review wherever you listen. This episode of The Ant Hill is produced by Grace Allen, Gemma Ware, and me, Annabelle Bly, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.